Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwell-Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, This is Joni on the Regenerative by Design podcast. And today we have a really special guest here and we're going to do something different. I have my friend and coworker, Greta Gessel here, who is part of the Snacktivist team in addition to doing a bunch of other amazing things that she does. I don't know how she manages it all, but um, she's going to talk to me and help our audience to learn a little bit more about the Snacktivist journey, why we do what we do, and kind of get to the bottom of some of the more, um, you know, details of the Snacktivist way and the regenerative by design, like, concept um, when, when it comes to product development. So welcome, Greta. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. Super. I'm really glad this worked out. So tell us a little bit about you. So first and foremost, I am a Snacktivist champion. <laughs> yeah, you and are. Do, yes, you are. I do sales support. I talk Snacktivist all day long to everybody. It's hysterical because I believe so deeply in what you're doing. Thank you. And, um, and then I'm a mortgage broker and I also work for a nonprofit called CDA 2030, which is a visioning organization that takes the community voices and then puts what the community wants into action. So. Amazing. I think that these two things go together so well on so many levels and it's just wonderful. Thank you for being such a advocate for me and for my business and just providing all the love and support you have over the years in general. So we're going to start today by, you know, going through these questions that you hear, because for those of you who don't work with Greta, like I do, like Greta does the phone calls to our customers and different partners that we work with. And You would never believe it, but I am super shy on the phone. I'm actually one of those people that I get so nervous that I'll, I'll put the numbers on my phone and then I stop and I put down the phone and I'll like go pour coffee. And then I come back and I stare (laughs) at the phone and I'm like, Oh no, (laughs) I'm horrified of the phone. It's so weird. I don't think anyone knows that about me, but no, everybody does. So Greta is amazing in that she is like a natural. Um, strangers are friends that you just don't know yet. Exactly. And um, she has a gift on the phone of really communicating complex things to people in a concise way. And you hear questions from people that I don't hear. So mm-hmm. we're going to go over some of those questions today. Also at trade shows, because Greta has done trade shows with me, which is so much fun. She's totally my trade show sidekick extraordinaire. And, uh, and she has some awesome questions from those experiences that we can carry forth and share with you today. So Greta, go ahead. And what do you think the first question is? So I think with people that have never heard of Snacktivist, um, who should have heard of Snacktivist by now, because it's amazing. (laughs) What is Snacktivist is what they ask me. So you tell me. Yeah. So it's a tough thing to put into a tiny nutshell, but we always say really like Snacktivist makes a line of incredible green-based foods that are carbon 
soil and health focused and radically impact new, uh, human nutrition. So when you look at it like that, it's like, oh, it's a food company that's climate and soil and health focused. Like, what does that mean? And and that's always kind of a confusing thing to communicate to people. But when you look at the health of a any organism, whether it's a human or an animal or a plant or anything out there in the ecosystem, you're really only as healthy as the food and water that comes into your body or your system, like say your plant, what it comes into the plant. And we know if you plant a plant and if you've ever had a house plant and you don't water it well and you don't feed it, what happens to it? Yeah. It, it turns brown. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and um, we're the same way. So, you know, one of the things that I identified in my years nursing and uh, other things I did professionally was that, um, you know, people who didn't nourish themselves tend to have a lot more disease, as we know. I mean, this is like a no-brainer. But what I also found is that grain-based foods were like the deal breaker. So when I was doing diabetic education or working with cardiovascular ICU, people were always like, don't tell me I have to cut out bread or don't tell me I have to cut out my carbs. Like, I want to still have cookies. I want to still have things that I love and I enjoy and I or I love to bake or those kind of things. I really want pizza. Those are the things that... It's like an emotional connection. Mm-hmm. And I'm also very passionate about the role of grains um, and stable pantry items in food security and global resiliency. And I think it's time we fight to bring back the pantry. Um, when you look at the innovation in the grocery industry, the periphery has had a massive res- renaissance. Mm-hmm. Like you go to the drink area, how many different kombuchas do you see? You go to the produce section, like, wow, you know, amazing. You go to all these different parts of the grocery store and then you go to the center aisle and you're like, what happened? You know, like this <laughs> right. is, these are the same brands that I saw when I was a kid in the seventies and eighties. And, and it's delivering the same promise. Like it's going to taste great, good, but it's going to be bad for you. Right. And there's no reason we can't have great grain based foods. And it's a bonus because if the trucks stop coming or the trains go on strike and suddenly you don't have a stocked grocery store, you better have some nutritious things in your pantry. So Snacktivist is set out to really fix that. And part of the way we're going to fix that is breaking the monotony of our dependency of commodities, rice, corn, and wheat. I mean, as a world, we used to have very diverse carbohydrate staples. Mm -hmm. And in the last hundred years, we've lost 75% of that diversity. Like factually, 75% of all genetic diversity of our basic crops has been lost. So you think about the impact on our health, Mm -hmm. the impact on our gut microbiome, the impact on our agricultural landscapes, losing that diversity there has been huge too. And it's amazing that you can fix all that with something as simple as a cookie. Right? (laughs) (laughs) That is so, that is, every time you speak, I'm so inspired. So what I know about regenerative agriculture is some of the stories that you shared with me. And so, and this is the the piece that I find super fascinating. So you talked about a ranch in Mexico called Las Damas. Mm -hmm. And I think, cause we talk a lot about food security for the future, for our kids. And because we've depleted the soil and because, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the aisles in the center are just, they're kind of, they're, not the kind of nutrients that we all need all the time. So we want to have the diversity like you're talking about. And so the, when we talk about 
how can we solve some of the food problems in the world? You've talked about some of these specific kinds, and that's why regenerative agriculture is so important to you. Yeah, it, it really is because the diversity that we need to bring back to our plates reflects the biodiversity that we need to bring back to the fields. And they work hand in hand. You cannot drive biodiversity in the field if your food system is just demanding white rice and white flour and cor corn syrup. I mean, that's what you're going to get. And so I feel like the just the experience of this regenerative um, kind of renaissance that's happening is shifting the way that we're looking at all these systems. And there's a value di diversity component where we're valuing things just beyond a calorie. For many years, our food system was driven purely on the concept of how many calories can we get per acre? What is our yield per acre? It was not driven by what is the true cost of driving that yield per acre or calorie per acre? Like, is this costing us water that's unsustainable? Is it costing us contamination due to chemical inputs? Right. Is it driving desertification? And, um, and once we start looking at a broader concept of value, you start realizing that these calories aren't cheap. They're not cheap at all. And, um, and in fact, then if you really want to get crazy about your math, you can add in the cost of healthcare and diet-related disease burden. And suddenly that calorie per acre is looking very expensive. So what we've learned, you know, in, in watching this unfolding of the food system, being very chemically intensive, very yield intensive, mm -hmm. we've achieved some amazing milestones. And I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to come across as not appreciating the earnest um, focus of the scientists and farmers that were led that revolution. And, um, and then you look at the green revolution it was an extension of our food systems revolution here, although in the hands of people who were criminal minded, like Pol Pot in Cambodia. And um, again, um, chemically intensive agriculture that minimized diversity and drove not only environmental exhaustion and desertification, but also drove health um, deficiencies and nutrition deficiencies mm -hmm. globally. So what we're seeing with regenerative and why it's so amazing is not only does it help bring back high quality foods, still producing high capacity yields. I mean, it's not like you're walking away from mm -hmm. a productive farming system. You still have a productive farming system, but you're reducing your needs for your inputs. Sometimes you're even shaping climate like this Las Damas Ranch has demonstrated to us. And I'll talk about that more in a minute, but it's just, it's like a much more holistic, comprehensive view that has a long-term plan in place. Like this is something that you can say, this system will work when our great grandkids are adults and raising their families. Mm -hmm. What we're doing now is not profitable. I mean, farms are going bankrupt right and left. And if our, if our farming system was profitable, they wouldn't be going bankrupt. <laughs> That's just a basic economics 101 right. <laughs> issue. And so, and then when you look at the loss of um, arable lands to desertification globally, it's a big deal. And we've known about loss of, of farmland for, for decades. I mean, if you, if you lived through the 80s, you were very well acquainted from TV about what was happening in Africa. And that was one of the first globally broadcasted climate refugee situations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, massive drought, ma massive famine, and Africa has been experiencing climate-driven refugee movements extensively for 20, 30 years. We're now seeing it in the United States too. So we were happily ignoring that for a very long time. And now look at California. 
Um, now look at the desert Southwest. Um, we're seeing loss of farmlands mm-hmm. every day. This year in particular has been a real wake up call. So when you do look at examples like Los Damas Ranch, which is in the Chihuahuan Desert in Mexico, very, very dry. And if you're not familiar with this case study, um, it was a family legacy ranch. It's, ranch. it's quite large. I don't recall what the actual square acreage is, but it's a big ranch. Mm-hmm. But it was, um, grandfather was ranching and they were finding it was harder and harder to make it work because it was getting drier and drier. There was less grass. There was, it was just getting to be too much. And one of the gentlemen who I don't know personally, his name is Alejandro. He's, um, he's, he had left and became educated in something. I, I can't remember what it's like computer sciences or something more techie. Like he, he left to be a tech guy. And then he came back and was like, wait a minute, we can't just let the ranch go turn to desert and be abandoned. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. And so it's a legacy. He, it's a legacy. <laughs> and so he started putting in like these amazing regenerative practices and it's mostly cattle focused and ranching, but you can't, you can't pay attention to ranching without paying attention to the plants and the bugs and, you know, the insects are indicator species, everything else. And after many years, I think it's been 15 years. Don't quote me on that. Um, I'm sure my understanding ag guys will be like, wait, get your facts straight. <laughs> but um, they've actually gone in there and the pictures of before and after are stunning. Mm-hmm. They have taken depleted desert soil that was on the brink of so being so salinated and so dry that it needed to be abandoned. And it has now been restored to being a lush savanna. So we're realizing that, wow, deserts could be savannas. Well, we all know what, what, why is the Serengeti different than the Sahara? Like it's a, it's full of life and deserts aren't, (laughs) I mean, deserts have life in them, but not life that can sustain populations of humans. I mean, dung beetles, sure, but you're not, (laughs) well, which you have plants. Okay. Like you're not going to support a global population with deserts. So what Los Damas Ranch has, has really demonstrated to us is a, there's hope we can, we can change the situation through regenerative restorative practices. We can take land that has been given up on and we can restore it to being a thriving, healthy ecosystem that can produce food. And B, they're starting to show now with their data that they have higher precipitation levels than surrounding areas, which, you know, when you look at the bioaerosols, you start looking at like the bigger water cycles and the ecology that drives water cycles this process has the capacity to influence detrimental climate patterns. That can't be understated. Absolutely. I was so inspired when we talked about this the very first time. I'm still floored. I talk about it often. People are like, what? I don't know. And then when I continue to talk about it and how, when you explained that the roots draw in the moisture and then it, you said some oxygen word I didn't understand. <laughs> I, I often have to look up what Jonah the words Jonah uses. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Tell me what that is. But so it is interesting when you do look at like that deep life that starts to sprout in what we call nerd word rhizosphere, which is just a fancy way of like the, you know, six, eight inches beneath the surface of the, uh-huh. of the soil when you start bringing back life and here they're ranching and they're doing very intentional regenerative ranching. So again, it's not the cow, it's the how, because cows have a very bad rap when it comes to climate. But when you look at the role of ruminants in restoring these very damaged ecosystems, because they're basically biomass spreaders, 
they're, um, when used correctly, they bring in, they infuse the system with fresh microbiome. Um, it helps revive an entire ecosystem that lives under the surface of the earth. You don't yeah. normally see it. You don't pay attention to it. And once you start getting those types of species in place, you start collecting condensation out of the air, even low humidity areas, like in the desert at night, you'll find dew. Well, you don't find dew in the desert because there's no place for the dew to collect. When you have intact grass and, and other species, you start to actually drive these small micro water cycles, which is really fascinating. And because there is a release of water when plants are photosynthesizing, you start you actually start driving different humidity patterns. And so it's really inspirational to me when I when I look at what's possible. There's a reason why I don't get depressed about climate change, because I feel like there's so much we can do. But we need to shift our consumption patterns to foster this process. And that's where the regenerative comes in, right? Mm -hmm. We're regenerating the soil to be healthy again so that we can grow food so that we can Mm -hmm. feed people. Yeah. And there's three main drivers in my mind to regeneration in the food system and in these ag systems. I call them the three B's. Um, It's there are three drivers that have tons of tools, like depending on where you're at and what. You know, there's so much diversity in just farm location and situation. Like, I don't think there's ever one set of rules that like is perfect for everybody. So I tend to look at them with like broad brushstrokes of the three B's and that's um, biodiversity is the first, biomimicry is the second and biologicals is the third. So bio, you know, biodiversity is Mm self-explanatory, having as much diversity in your system as possible. So say you're a wheat farmer in Eastern Washington and you just grow wheat, fallow, wheat, fallow, wheat, fallow, canola once in a blue moon, bringing biodiversity in is going to be a driver that's going to help you go towards regeneration. That can be through polyculture. It can be cover cropping. It can be just mixing up what your plantings are. And these farmers have to have cash worthy channels for these crops. I mean, cover seeds are expensive. So if we can have farmers that are like, oh, I'm going to plant millet in my fallow instead of just letting that open air blow away. And then we get 10,000 tons of topsoil dropped in Lake Coeur d'Alene every time the wind blows. Suddenly it's a Mm win-win. They're incentivized to do good. They're making more money and it's helping stabilize soil and bring forth regeneration. Second B, biomimicry. We should be looking at nature and mimicking the biological lessons that are observed in a natural system as much as possible. So I think the common sense rule number one here we shouldn't probably be growing high irrigation need crops in the desert. It's an artificial construct. Uh-huh. It doesn't make, it's not good for longevity on a large scale. And we're seeing that in California right now. And they're, they're saying, and in the restaurant world, they're like, Hey, we're going to have a deficit in fresh vegetables this year because California cannot make all the salad for the entire continent. It doesn't have enough water. I mean, that's, so that's scary. a wake up call. It is. It's so scary. So that's a biomimicry problem because if we're really obeying the laws of biomimicry and, you know, and there's obviously creative license in here because we're humans, we'd like to create our own, uh, we're intentional in creating the world to, to fit our needs, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a limit of reason that does fit within the laws of nature. And I think biomimicry is the driver there. It's like, what tools can we use that set us up for success because we're not fighting nature. We're not controlling nature. We're optimizing nature and Mm -hmm. biomimicry allows you to optimize nature to create more yield. Right. Yeah. So that's why that's the second B. 
Third B is biologicals. So for years, our farming systems are, have been driven on synthetic chemical inputs. Um, synthetic chemical inputs do have some detriment to water, air quality. Um, they can be very damaging to soil ecosystems and they're very costly. And they're very costly from a carbon footprint standpoint because they take a tremendous amount of energy to make. Um, and so they're very energy intensive. If you if you shift your system to biologicals, you start optimizing, even if you still use synthetic fertilizers, because we work with farmers who are still transitioning. They're not organic yet, or maybe they don't want to be organic. Maybe they're just so old school that they just don't, but they want to do better. They want to reduce their dependency on these chemical synthetic inputs. They start to infuse their system with biological things. So manures, cover crops that stay in the field. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like, Sometimes they'll grow a cover crop and they just go out there and whack it down and they just leave it and let it decompose and it creates compost. Um, it draws carbon out of the atmosphere. You cut it and then that carbon goes back into the soil. And when you have a higher carbon, you know, residue in your soil, mm -hmm. that is what feeds all these amazing ecosystems of earthworms, nematodes, water bearers, like all these little tiny mm. critters that are microscopic or small mm. that drive a healthy soil system and help sequester carbon. So biologicals are so important, whether you're an organic farmer or a synthetic farmer or mm. transitional, we desperately must get biologicals put back into our systems to buffer the soil. Um, it's a big, big deal. So those are, those are those three B's. Okay. And so everything Snacktivist does, like with our product design and like our, what we do to try to work with farmers is to try to impact those three B's wherever possible. I love it. So I like to tell a story about why you started Snacktivist. So tell me that mm -hmm. just in general. Yeah. So why we started it is that we were experiencing like, so many moms have this story and I love it because it's so human. It's like you're a mom, you're raising a family, you're busy working. My husband, busy working. I was working in ICU and he was working in ER. So weird, long hours, um, you know, wanting to feed our kids healthy and um, relying a lot on babysitters. And so when it became apparent that not only myself had dietary allergies, because I'm allergic to eggs, um, it also became very clear that my son was not tolerating wheat. My daughter has a myriad of digestive issues, has since she was a baby, cannot tolerate, could not tolerate dairy at all. Like it had a true milk allergy as a baby. And so we kind of were that family that no one knew what to do with. Like no one's going to invite you over for dinner because you're <laughs> a annoying, B can't eat anything. And C, you're like kind of scared because right. if you go to what someone's house, you're like, <laughs> Oh gosh, maybe if I get tangled up with something, I have, I'm anaphylactic allergic to shrimp and crab too. So, I mean, there's, I, and I grew up on a farm. Um, people love to be real cheeky, you know, especially my God bless them. My lovely farmer buddies that are like, <laughs> kids who grew up on farms are tough. They don't have those allergies. Like all those city kids do. And I'm like, you're looking at it. Like I grew up having to feed the cattle in the morning and go get eggs out of the chicken coop. And I would show up with hives and my eyes swollen shut. Tell me how that one worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we pulled our carrots out of the dirt and ate them, <laughs> but something went awry and my kids inherited that from me. And I truly believe that that is because of the food system. I believe it's from exposure mm -hmm. to chemicals that are in our food system. I also believe that, um, for me personally, um, 
I was really sick as a kid and had a lot of antibiotics and that set me up for having chronic dysbiosis. Like it's like a state where your mic- gut microbiome is off. Mm-hmm. And um, my kids probably inherited that from me because you, you inherit your microbiome from your mom. Largely. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's your first inoculation event is who you're closest to. So whoever is caring for you, you share microbiomes. Um, It's really crazy how that works. So um, I started Snacktivist because I needed something to feed my kids that I felt good about and was healthy and fit our allergy requirements and then had a bigger picture impact that was special and cool and fun. So and that's how our Baking Mix line was born. And so why baking mixes mixes then? Well, when we started, we had grandiose ideas that we were going to launch finished products like snacks. That's what we call snacktivists. I was like, cool. We make these amazing millet crackers and we make these amazing sorghum chips and tortillas. And I made these fantastic muffins that were like, they had like vegetables in them and like chia seeds and ancient grains. And they were like one of the very first snacktivist things that people experienced and they were fantastic and then i realized oh it's very expensive to start a food company especially finished products i started calling co-packers i was like okay if i had you make you know these crackers for us what are the minimums like what am i looking at and they're like well it's going to be ten thousand dollars for the pilot run and then you've got to have your packaging and then our minimums are this so it's going to be about twenty thousand dollars every time and then you better have your sales channels figured out and you need this insurance and i was like oh no this isn't gonna work i mean i'm a nurse like i have a paycheck to paycheck you know i don't have any money so um we were we were like back up back up and i had this fantastic business advisor he was on my advisory board good friend chris wood smart smart guy And he was an experienced entrepreneur. And I'm like, what do I do? And he goes, well, what can you do? Like, what can you afford to do? Mm -hmm. You make these awesome, like, sorghum pizza crusts. And you make these awesome um, focaccia breads and and muffins. And those could be mixes. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't have to be finished. Just sell the mix. Let the customer do the work. And that's how we launched. That is why we launched a baking mix line. Not because we are passionate about baking mixes. Right. I don't even use baking mixes. Like, I'm one of those people, like... I'm a scratch cook. So <laughs> they don't follow recipes, which yeah. is a problem. If you buy a baking mix and don't follow the directions, you fail. <laughs> yeah. So what I want to say right now is if you ever have the pleasure to know Joni and be at the kitchen table with your child, your child will then ask you every single week to just eat at Joni's. Can we go to Joni's for dinner, oh, mom? Gosh. Like, no, honey. <laughs> and then it's like, why are you putting pine needles in my food? Yeah. Those are rosemary's. <laughs> <laughs> all the funny, yeah. the funny comments we get. And then Jody will say, hey, we just made dinner. And I was like, oh, we just ate. And my kid will say, well, I'll have second dinner. And yeah. then she'll go up and eat. It's She'll come up. For, she's like, can I have second dinner? <laughs> so I love to cook. Yeah. Um, feeding people is one of my true joys in life. Yeah. Like, honestly, like if they were like, you're going to die tomorrow. What are you going to do today? Making a really good meal for my loved ones would be high on the list. Yeah. There's something like sacred and magical about preparing really good food. And, um, and you know, you know me, I usually have a garden that's going crazy. So we have like fresh herbs and you know, it's Idaho. So that's only part of the year, but you know, um, it's It's so good. Your food is so good. There's just something amazing about that. And so for us, you know, solving this problem of like, how can we continue that level of like foodie snobbery where I was like, I am not willing to eat some rubbery gritty piece of like Ugh, like a lot of the gluten-free things, I was like, 
I don't know who thinks this is okay, but it's not. Like, this is not okay. So with that said, so when we've done trade shows before, so I'll have um, the brownies or the focaccia bread or whatever. And so people walk by and I was like, hey, have you tried this? And they're like, no. It's like, try it. They're like, well, what is it? I said, try it first. And so then they try it. And then they're like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And then I'll say, and guess what's not in it? And they look at me like, what? Yeah. (laughs) And then I rattle off. So you say them because I say them so quickly because I have to, but they're free of. Gluten-free, dairy-free, egg-free, soy-free, nut-free, free the top eight allergens. Right. So vegan. Yeah. Allergy inclusive. And then they look at me really puzzled and they say. Well, what is in it? Yeah. And then, because you talk about ancient grains, and so your product's made with ancient grains. So talk about that for a second, because I think that's so incredible. Um, yeah, so our guiding light is really that it should be what you're full of, not what you're free from that makes you good. Because too often, free from foods, their only purpose in life is to be free from, which usually means they're free of flavor and nutrition right along with it all. <laughs> I mean, that's literally like, I mean, yeah, it's allergy inclusive. If you're celiac, that's very important. I mean, if you're traveling, you can't get sick. So even if you're like, this sucks, but at least I won't get sick. I mean, there is, there's yeah, that. There is that. But it doesn't need to be that way. It's just because we have had a lot of uncreative people that didn't think outside the box. And, you know, when you start playing with whole grains, like for me, when I, I mean, I have made a lot of bread in my life from scratch, homemade, even sometimes fresh milk. And it's like, for me, the gold standard is it should be at least 70% whole grain, mm-hmm. if not hundred um, percent. Because the point of a grain and why it's nutritious is in the bran. If you remove all the bran, you've kind of removed the point. You're just eating refined carbohydrates. Right. And so when I was formulating our flour blends, I was like, I want it to be like ancient grain forward, sorghum, millet, teff. Um, In those days, I was using a lot of buckwheat and quinoa and other ancient grains like amaranth, Mm -hmm. which are all amazing and special. We're bringing those back. We just narrowed our focus the last couple of years. And um, we have been able to produce a line of products that all of our flour blends are at least 70% whole grain, mm-hmm. 60 to 70%, right. excuse me. Some are down near 60, which is actually pretty exceptional um, for a pastry. For one, most wheat pastries can't compete with that. Yeah. Very few. Like if you go buy cookies, how many are whole wheat cookies? I don't know that I've had Not ver- yeah. Right. Exactly. But your cookies are really good. Yeah. And they're whole grains. So. Yeah. It's really a, an interesting thing. Um, we did get approached by the Washington Autism Moms Group out of Spokane. And they were like, help, you know, we've got these kids. They've got multiple sensitivities. They're very um, sensory sensitive. And they don't want like pungent, like they won't eat brown. ancient. They won't yeah. eat like a brown bread. It's got to be a white bread or a white tortilla. They're just, you know, white rice. I mean, and that's very common mm-hmm. with kids with sensory processing, um, you know, the spectrum of those. And so I was like, oh, well, I think we can crack this code because the, these moms said, we really want our kids to be getting more diversity in their diet, but they won't eat vegetables. They won't eat fruit. They only eat something white. So how can we sneak in novel different grains into like a slice of bread? Right. If you're eating toast every day and that's all you eat. Yeah. The moms were like, sneak in like some of these ancient grains so we can get this nutrition. So that is how our all-purpose flour was developed. And that's why it actually leads with brown rice flour because I tested it on all these amazing kids and I would bring them pizza and I'd bring them bread and toast and cookies. 
And that was the blend that they loved the most. And so it is, it's a little bit less pungent because sorghum, millet, taff, they have a more pungent flavor profile, but they're still in there. Like there's still a great, great diversity of whole grains in that flour. Yeah. So funny. The focaccia is one of my favorite favorites and I know it's brown, but I made it one day. Oh, it's so good. But I made it one day. And I took it out hot and I had olive oil and I like salt in my olive oil. Oh, yeah. And yes. a friend of mine and I, we ate the entire pan. <laughs> yeah, it, it's <laughs> easy to do. <laughs> Technically speaking, there's eight servings in there. So if you're like, oh, this is an expensive loaf of bread, you're like, but there's 11 servings. Yeah. You're rich. You know, right? it's a couple bucks so, a day. Yeah. Um, but it there is, I, that is my favorite of all of our products. That is my absolute favorite. Yeah. Mm. I, but then again, like, one of my favorite meals in the entire world is just a bowl of like zesty greens or arugula, some balsamic and olive oil and garlic, and then like a good bread to dip with it. And like, to me, that is just like the ultimate meal. I love it. I love it too. Mm -hmm. My gosh. Well, I find Snacktivist to be the, on the forefront of moving things forward. And I love what you do. And I appreciate all of the hard work and energy and effort and time that you have put into (laughs) <laughs> into this uh, um, journey of yours. It's amazing. Thank you, Greta. It has been a journey. That is for sure. But it's very rewarding for the most part. I mean, it's <laughs> like there's days when it's certainly not rewarding. But, um, you know, when I stand back and I take the 30,000 foot view and I look at the future and I look at my kids and I look at the food system, that's when even on days when I'm like, this is too hard. I can't do this, you know? I am like, but I kind of have to, somebody's got to do this and many people need to do this. It can't, and it shouldn't ever be just us. And there is a band of great brands and individuals and people that are all working in the space to really make this happen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you going to expand Snacktivist to do? Yes. Yeah. So we've launched a frozen product line. Pizza crust, brownie bites, soon to be cookie dough also um, frozen for food service right now. So right now we're just expanding those food service lines. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We really love working with chefs. We're so glad that restaurants are open again, even though it's still a struggle. Um, We just love working with chefs. And we think that chefs are going to be the most important player in making this all come to life because you look at the when quinoa hit, I mean, I was one of those kids in college, like in the nineties, I went and got quinoa from the bulk bin and soaked it overnight and made it and did all the steps way, you know, back when we called it quinoa, cause we had no idea. We just were reading it <laughs> off of the bulk bin. Right? We didn't know. And so, but then in the early two thousands, there were people who were like, let's make this a, a new soft commodity. Let's make this a new special ingredient that can be an awesome grain substitute because it's very high in, in nutritional value. It's fun. It's got a different taste and flavor and um, also has this really unique, cool sourcing story um, in that quinoa grows in very poor soils at very high elevations where most things won't grow. It's really a cool, it's a really cool story. We can get into that a little bit more later, but um, it was when the chefs started playing with quinoa and then the UN had year of quinoa where they drew attention to it. And it was like a perfect storm that now you go to Walmart and they have quinoa bowls at Walmart in their deli. And I'm like, well, thank God, because I wouldn't eat anything else here. So I might eat that if I were desperate. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. So chefs, I keep trying. I reach out to chefs all the time. And that we do have some amazing chefs that we work with. But in general, 
it's been so hard for us to engage with chefs on ancient grains and be like, let's get this product out there and like, forget about it being gluten-free, like serve it to people. Talk about that. It's full of sorghum and how amazing sorghum is. And it's a forgotten crop. I mean, it's actually the fifth global commodity in the world. Like a huge portion of the world lives on sorghum or its byproducts. But in the United States, we totally overlook it. It is a neglected crop. And that's partially because of like kind of colonial food system culture where it was considered a coarse cereal. It's not what the wealthy eat. The wealthy eat polished white rice and polished white wheat. Right. If you're wealthy, that's what you eat. If you're poor, you eat brown bread. Right. Or if you're an immigrant. And that deep embedded, um, you know, classism, racism, the whole nine yards has literally hijacked our whole, our whole food system. And that's why, you know, back in, you know, France in the 16th, 17th century, only the real rich had, you know, significant cardiovascular disease. I mean, people died of other things. They died of malnutrition, not a great time to be alive on a lot of levels, (laughs) but it's, it's interesting when you look at the disease, um, like the nutritional anthropology and, um, look at like disease rates and you look at like carbon isotopes and skeletons and dentition and you're like whoa so the people who their skeletons have a high c4 ratio before new world discovery so they weren't eating potatoes they weren't eating corn they weren't eating anything from the new world no tomatoes What's no peppers c4 ratio so c4 <laughs> ratio is a carbon isotope okay there's two types of carbon that come from plants one c4 and one is c3 so c4 plants tend to be plants that do really well and under heat stress. Um, they, their, their corn is a, is a different, it's, it's like they're heat loving crops and they, um, they have a whole lot of other things I won't bore you with. Cause they're like botany nerd central C3 <laughs> plants are like wheat is a C3 plant. So when you look at carbon, when you look at skeletal remains of people who lived at other times, you can kind of get a little bit of an idea of what their food was by the C4 or C3 ratio. And you do look at European populations, pre-Columbian discovery, um, and they have a pretty significant C4 ratio, especially if they weren't in the elite class. Right. Those people tend to have better teeth and stuff. It's so weird where if you were eating lots of polished grains, high C3 diet, um, you know, probably a lot of sugar coming from wherever, um, you know, and then the sweets and stuff, they tend to, to have more um, Western associated diseases. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I think something that you said earlier too about Stacktivist, and we've said this at trade shows, that you don't have to be gluten-free or vegan to eat something that yeah. is gluten-free or vegan. And I think that there's like this dichotomy, what's I call it, the shift that needs mm-hmm. to happen in people's minds yeah. to look at mm-hmm. not what it says on the label. I mean, look at it if you have those allergies, but to look at Stacktivist products as yes. a healthy product yes. for everyone in the room. It's a, it's like a grain analog and it doesn't matter if you're gluten-free or not or vegan or not. Chances are you're going to like this. Whether you uh, decide to afford it, um if you don't need a special diet is another thing because gluten-free processing is more expensive. Um and you know the thing is is like that there's a very real reason gluten-free products cost more. And it's not because we're making extra profit. I'll tell you that. (laughs) It'd be kind of handy if it were that way, but that's not the way it works. It's that um, when you're doing all the specialized processing, everything has to be batch tested continuously. It has to be, you know, everything's got to be processed on squeaky clean equipment that is not cross-contaminated. The levels of safety that go into it 
because it's more touch points and it's smaller volumes creates a higher price point. And it is just the reality. Um, If we could start processing more and more and more of these crops for human food grade application, and um, we're having more volume, then we could get more competitive pricing. We could start, you know, really, you know, having more collaborative, uh, like uh, aggregative economic opportunities. So say like a bunch of gluten-free brands get together and they're like, hey, we're buying sorghum. We're buying enough sorghum now where we're manufacturing it at scale. And now we're competing with like more non-specialty pricings because yeah. um, sorghum's not an expensive crop. It just yeah. isn't. Um, and in fact, there are so many farmers that want to grow these crops. Like I get more reach outs from more farmers than I could ever put to work right now because they are under more and more pressure all the time from climate. So, you know, oddball weather patterns, um, intense heat stress at key peak times yeah. of the summer. Um, there is a huge increase in demand for these types of crops in agricultural and agronomic settings. Mm -hmm. Um, the food system has been slow to respond and it's actually one of the things that's kind of really screwing up this transition for many, many farmers that are wanting to put in more biodiversity and transition to more regenerative climate resilient biomimicry friendly practices is that we still have the same old food system that's demanding ultra high corn syrup, you know, corn that, you know, can only be grown under intense water, intense fertilizer, intense pesticides, intense insecticides uh, and and herbicides. And, And it's the food system that continues to perpetuate that. If the market changes and the demand changes, farmers will change. The systems will change. But until consumers are saying we want something better, and we're going to buy it and we're not going to buy these other things, it's going to be really tough. Right. So that's kind of where we're at today. Um, I want you to, so I, you have all of these degrees and stuff. And the reason that you do what you do is because you know so much about, do you, have, you have a botany degree, right? You have a botany degree. Yeah. Yeah. And it does give you a really different perspective. <laughs> and you're like, I, I own a food brand, but I'm actually a botanist. Um, and I did ethnobotany work right. for a long time. And I really feel like this is just practical application of ethnobotany. Mm-hmm. You know, you look around the world and you look at where are, what crops, neglected crops are out there. You strive to do seed preservation because right now it's a race to, pro- to protect and, you know, find these rare seeds and cultivate them and study them genetically and not just let them sit in seed banks. We need to be cultivating them. We need to be growing those seed. If I'm ever a, a millionaire, literally one of my major focuses in life would, I would just finance seed, um, rare seed breeding programs globally to try to preserve what gen- gene plasm we have left. Because as cold, but as climate is shifting, as we're developing super bugs, we're not prepared. Um, and I've seen this all go down as a nurse because I also have a BSNRN. And I lived the era of antibiotic resistance. And um, I have seen people die of antibiotic resistant bacteriums that no matter what we threw at them, the bacteria won because we selected to make for superbugs. That is a human driven phenomenon. That is not a natural driven phenomenon. That is a human driven phenomenon. And we are doing the same thing in with weeds. We're doing the same thing with pests. 
And we, we have so exhausted our war chest of synthetic um, targeted chemicals that we're at the exact same place in agriculture as we are in the hospital with our antibiotics. And so, so we, we are not researching fast enough to keep up with these superbugs. We're, we just aren't. There's not enough research being done. There's not enough money to fuel the research. We're kind of like, I mean, there's new ideas, but we're kind of like, where do we go next? Mm-hmm. Well, how about we just create systems that are less susceptible to these super bugs or super pests in the first place? So we do know with humans, people who have a good, healthy, hearty system are less susceptible to super bugs. People who suffer from uncontrolled diabetes and suffer from other um, degenerative disorders that are diet related are very susceptible to superbugs. Um, that is just like staph and MRSA and things like that. Like we just know that right. um, those people are less likely to survive even ICU antibiotic treatment with IV, the biggest, baddest things mm-hmm. we can throw at it. Their mortality rates are much higher because we don't have a healthy intact ecology to start with. Same thing happens in the field. You know, you have an exhausted field. The soils are there's no vitality left in that soil. We are keeping it alive through science. Well, no wonder you get these crazy weeds that are like out of a sci-fi story that like, no matter what you do, they don't die. So we have bred our crops selectively to be able to withstand higher and higher levels of chemical inputs like pesticides and herbicides. We have genetically modified them so that we can put a lethal dose on them and they'll continue living. The unexpected consequences of that is that we are creating a, a perfect storm. And um, when we've got a lot of people to feed, we don't have time. We can't afford a pest to come in and have that superpower strength. And we don't have anything that will kill it. And say it goes around the world and eats all the crops. Say it goes, I'm going after corn and I'm going to eat every cornfield in North America. Imagine what would happen to our food system. Scary. Yeah. Really, really scary. It's actually something that we should give a lot more thought to. And if you have biodiverse, ecologically intact farming systems, they're going to be more resilient to these things. So on that note, we'll wrap it up. (laughs) And this is where I get like really like lost in the weeds. But this is where, you know, all these crazy things from science, they, they, they are, you do affect them. If anyone who eats, you're at that nexus point. You are the driver that drives, you know, food system that drives agriculture, that drives climate impact through big systems. Everybody out there, if you eat, you are a participant. So that's where it's like call of action, everybody like yeah. get involved. Think about it. You know, just think about that. You are a, you are a driver in the system and you're not a passive recipient. No one is no one's off the hook in this case. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. All of our future depends yeah. on what you're doing and the good work you're doing. Thank well, you. Thank you. Yeah. So Greta, thanks for joining. We're going to have some more of these. So for those of you who are listening, we're going to have some more of these sessions that are just internal team where we just explore different issues that our listener may be interested in. And, um, you know, that kind of help you understand a little bit more why the Snackivist Nation is a movement, not just a brand. It's right. not just another brand selling another widget because we want to just get rich and bail. Nope. We are out to make a better world for our children and our children's children and save this planet. So, and so for anyone who's listening, please 
buy either the focaccia or the brownies or both and try those first and then uh, report back. That's why you're our sales <laughs> maven. Like, you've got to try it because you won't believe it. When you taste it, you'll be like, no way. Because that is the exact response I get from everyone who it's tries it. So true. So good. From chefs to home <laughs> bakers alike. So awesome. Love Thank you, Greta. You. Thanks for Love coming. You too, baby. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.